from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up. If we're to debate this phony partisan budget, we will create some clarity for the American people. We're going to put senators on the record. That was Republican leader Mitch McConnell on the Senate floor yesterday as the Senate began their all-night votorama that ended this morning around 6 a.m. with the Senate passing a budget resolution by a vote of 51 to 50, right along party lines. The next step is the actual budget reconciliation measure, which will include the massive $1.9 trillion blue state bailout that President Biden is pushing. We'll talk about it with Terry Jeffrey editor-in-chief of CNS News. On Tuesday, we talked about the demands of Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And that's the real reason why I think that Senator Josh Hawley needs to resign, why Senator Ted Cruz needs to resign, along with many others, because they will do it again. Republicans are pushing back. Several House members have sent a letter to Speaker Pelosi calling for AOC to apologize for her reckless and baseless claims. The congressman who spearheaded the response, Texas Congressman Chip Roy, joins us a little later. And earlier this week, Republican House members held a special order on the sanctity of human life. I'll bring you highlights on today's edition of Washington Watch. And two weeks and 45 executive actions later, what do the actions of the Biden administration tell us about the direction they want to take the country? Well, we'll take a look at it with FRC Vice President of Policy and Government Affairs, Travis Weber, a little later here on Washington Watch. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you happen to miss any of today's program, you can catch it all later. It's archived at TonyPerkins.com. And mark your calendars. Pray vote stand town hall the way forward. Our first ever town hall meeting will take place Wednesday, February the 10th, 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time. It'll be live from Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary Hamrick, uh, along with ADF President and CEO Mike Ferris and myself, will be there. You can be a part of it. And we'll be taking live questions from across the country. Again, that's Wednesday, February the 10th, 7.30 p.m. To find out more, you can text the word STAND to 67742. That's 67742, the word STAND. That way you'll stay in touch with us no matter what's happening. Or you can check out prayvotestand.org. All right, last night in a 15-hour voterama, senators took 41 roll call votes on a variety of politically charged issues. And with a 50-50 Senate, 16 of the amendments came to a dead tie, which put the fate of the measures in the hands of Vice President Kamala Harris. Any guess as to how those went? Well, in the end, the 51 by 51 to 50, the resolution passed shortly before 6 a.m. this morning. And it, as I mentioned, paves the way for the budget reconciliation process, which will be used for the massive $1.9 trillion, that's T, trillion, dollar blue state bailout. Now, at the start of the all-nighter, Republican leader Mitch McConnell took to the floor saying the evening would be educational for Americans. Here's what he had to say. Clip two, please. If we're to debate this phony partisan budget, we will create some clarity for the American people. We're going to put senators on the record. Expect votes to stop Washington from actively killing jobs during a recovery, like terminating the Keystone Pipeline. That job-killing, one-size-fits-all minimum wage hike, and whether to bar tax hikes on small businesses for the duration of this emergency. Expect votes that would help target this plan toward America's needs. Issues like stimulus checks for illegal immigrants, pouring money into schools where unions are blocking reopening and the common-sense step of delaying new spending until existing funds have actually gone out the door. We'll see what this resolution looks like on the other side and what signals Democrats send to the American people along the way. Joining me now to talk about what happened last night and what is ahead with the budget reconciliation measure measure is CNS News Editor-in-Chief Terry Jeffrey. Terry, welcome back to the program. Tony, thanks for having me on. All right. First question. Did uh, the debate last night provide clarity for the American people as it's as it uh, pertains to the two parties? Well, I think uh, if you wanted to stay up till three in the morning, <laughs> it, I think it does to the degree that uh, 
people get it out there. Obviously, a lot of the things they voted on, the liberal media doesn't want to report on. But it did put people on the record, and uh, it showed just how horrendous and far left the Democratic Party has become. And... Uh, how they have complete disrespect, I think, for the values that made America great. Yeah, and in particular, uh, the issue of uh, the life issue. Senator Ben Sass having an amendment, the Born Alive bill, simply say, hey, if a baby survives an abortion uh, and uh, we should not deny that baby medical care, I cannot believe every Democratic member voted against that, except I, I think uh, did... did, um, did Manchin did, voted the right way, yeah. I believe. Yeah, I think Manchin voted for that one. But it, there was a 60-vote threshold for that measure, which I was a little surprised by. So it did not, uh, it did not pass. Um, right. They, need, they needed the 60 votes to get the amendment through. And I mean, you're right. Why, why would a, I mean, the issue there is so plain. Senator Sass's amendment is talking about a fully formed human life, a baby that has been born having survived an abortion, the, the abortionist is trying to kill the baby, but the baby is out of the mother's womb, it has survived. And the question is then, do you have a duty to protect that life? And Democrats said, no. I mean, that is unbelievable. And of course, it's obviously something the liberal media doesn't want to highlight and focus on. But that is what we have these guys on the record saying. No, they don't want to protect a born baby. It's like Governor Ralph Northam of Virginia. Same thing, except they voted on in the Senate. What other, well, I, I, probably for you, you weren't surprised, but what, what other votes last night stood out to you as, as warning signs as to what America may be facing in the months ahead? Well, I, I, I think there's this overarching issue of, of Joe Biden's quote-unquote relief bill and the fact that now they've set it up so it can pass by a simple, they get 50 votes and Kamala Harris gets the, the deciding vote. You know, Tony, last year was the record spending year for the federal government. The federal government spent more than $6.5 trillion. And the reason it was a record spending year is because they spent $3.2 trillion on COVID relief. President Trump signed a $2.3 trillion bill in March, and he signed another $900 billion bill in December, bringing it up to $3.2 trillion. That money has not all been spent by the federal government. It's so much money, they haven't been able to get it out the door yet, all of it. And Biden's asking for another $1.9 trillion, which would bring it up to $5.1 trillion. And here's a way of putting that in perspective. Before the pandemic started, there were 158.7 million people in the United States who had a job. In December 2019, they were working. If you pass this bill that Biden wants, the COVID relief spending alone in less than one year, that $5.1 trillion, will equal $32,129 per worker. And the money that's already been spent in that $3.2 trillion is worth more than 20000 per worker. So I think American voters have to ask themselves, did they get $20,000 worth of benefits from the federal government last year from those bills? I don't think so. Do they, no. do they think they're going to get more than or almost 12000 if Biden gets his $1.9 trillion spending? I don't think so. But that's what the, the Democrats grease the skids for that last night. Honestly, I don't think there's any way to stop it. And we have a government that's already $27.8 trillion in debt before they spend that additional $2 trillion. Uh, let, me, let me go back and underscore this for our listeners, because when you talk about uh, 32000 roughly, I'm rounding off, $32,000, that's just for the coronavirus relief spending that has taken place since last year. That does not include the regular spending, which is roughly at about $6 trillion, is it not? Some 5 $6 trillion? Exactly. Exactly. If, if Biden's plan passes, they will have spent in the, in the course of one year $32,129 on COVID relief alone for every single person that has a job in the United States. So far, they've spent 20159 per worker. If Biden's would add, if plan would add another $11,969 per worker. So, you know, I ask the listeners out there, did they get $20,000 worth of benefits from the federal government from those COVID relief plans? No. In fact, the New York Times reported that only about $400 billion of the money that's been spent went directly to combat the COVID epidemic. The other money went for other things. Some of it went to pay off local and state governments that did nothing. You know, people... 
when they get their paychecks, they look at it and they can see that state and local governments are already taking money away from them. They're paying taxes directly to this government. So now what the government did last year was they took your federal taxes plus money that they're borrowing on top of their $27.8 trillion in debt, and they're handing that back to state and local governments, theoretically because of the COVID uh, pandemic. But that money has nothing to do with the COVID pandemic. So what's happened is... Well, let, 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 me, let me stop you. Let me stop you right there, because I, I want I want to emphasize this point. That's why I called it a blue state bailout. This money primarily to the state and local governments are going to governments that are mismanaged, governments that have been heavy handed in their coronavirus uh, response, closing down businesses, which has uh, declined, uh, caused a decline in their tax revenue. And we're going to reward them for their authoritarian behavior. Exactly. I think what we've seen happen over the last year is these people who love big government, who want government to control every aspect of our life, have used the pandemic as an excuse to expand their power and to expand spending, which is what they need the money to to use that power. And I think it's it's a serious question. I mean, it literally, the New York Times said only four hundred billion of the three point two trillion they spent last year on COVID relief, theoretically, went to directly combat the pandemic. So most of the money went to other things. I think even by the New York Times analysis, they would not put it this way, but I think if you look at it objectively, that extra money, that $2.8 trillion that they spent on things other than combating the COVID epidemic, were an excuse, were money to make the government more powerful and more intrusive right. in our lives. Right. So, Terry, Jeffrey, when you look at the, the direct payments, is that, is that basically hush money to, uh, to voters <laughs> to say, you know, look, we're, we're spending all this money recklessly, but we're giving you some of it, too, so don't say anything in election time. Exactly. It's a bribe. And it's and it's because the Democrats are the champions of it. It's a partisan bribe. And uh, people who actually work and pay taxes, which is, I'm sure, most of the people listening right now, uh, they already paid that money in taxes. So if, they, if the government wants to cut taxes, great, cut taxes. Right. Yes. But this idea of handing out a check to literally everybody in the country as a way of trying to boost the political status of the politicians that did it is an outrage. I mean, it's a small form of socialism, which is the general direction that our country is heading in. I mean, if they have, their, if, if you know, if Bernie Sanders had his way, every small business would have to pay people $15 an hour, and, every, and the government would guarantee an income to everybody in America. That is the way we're drifting. Hopefully we won't get there, but that's the direction we're going. And the liberals in Washington are trying to use the COVID pandemic as an excuse to push us more in that direction. Right. And they're using the tax dollars of those who work and pay taxes to basically buy support from the American people with these direct payments, which are unprecedented. I know they happened during the Trump administration, uh, but this we've set a new precedent. I think they're going to continue. It's buying off the American people. Terry Jeffrey, as always, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much. I'll encourage people to take a look at uh, your piece. It'll give them heartburn, but they need to see it. Thank you, Terry. All right, folks, uh, take a look at uh, Terry's piece. You can find it at TonyPerkins.com. There is a price to pay for big government, and you're paying it. All right, coming up next, Congressman Chip Roy coming to the defense of Senator Cruz and others who were attacked by AOC called basically murderers. We'll talk with Chip Roy from Texas next. Don't go away. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible, and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now.
In our time, North Korea remains one of the world's most mysterious countries. Unfortunately, what we do know about North Korea indicates the country is also one of the world's worst abusers of human rights, including violations of religious freedom. The North Korean regime has engaged in an intense crackdown on religion for decades. Today, few religious believers remain, and those who do face grave danger. The secretive nature of the regime, nicknamed the Hermit Kingdom, makes it difficult for American leaders to address these human rights issues. Yet, even though options are limited, the gravity of the situation calls on Western countries to take every action possible to relieve the suffering of the North Korean people, a people who have no chance of speaking up for themselves. To learn more about this important issue, check out FRC's publication titled North Korea, the World's Foremost Violator of Religious Freedom. To access the information you need to stay informed, including a list of policy proposals, go to frc.org slash North Korea. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So good to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, we um, we talked about this on Tuesday. The demands of uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, uh, where she, uh, she, she took to uh, social media, I don't know, hour and a half, kept people hostage on social media, and, and talking about how... Um, Again, once again, Republicans were responsible. Josh Hawley, uh, Ted Cruz, saying that they should resign because they were responsible for what happened on January the 6th. Um, and, and, of course, she went into a whole bunch of other stuff. But members of the House are stepping forward and saying, look, this, this has gone too far, these allegations that she has made. And so they're calling on Speaker Pelosi uh, to demand that uh, AOC apologize for these accusations made against Senator Cruz. And uh, the man spearheading that, Congressman Chip Roy of Texas, joins me now. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Hey, Tony. Great to be on the show. I hope you are having a blessed day and doing well. I am. I am. Hey, I want to play a short clip because not only is she attacking Ted Cruz, she's also attacking you now that you're leading this effort. Here's here's a here's a short clip of what she had to say. Um, this past week, Ted Cruz and now Representatives Chip Roy and oh, by the way, some of the other representatives who actually encouraged people to threaten members of Congress or tweeted out the location of the speaker are now telling me to apologize for saying and speaking truth to what happened. These are the tactics of abusers. Uh, Chip Roy, the floor is yours. Well, obviously, uh, it, it is unfortunate that my colleague, you know, uh, went down that road of accusing me of, quote, being like an abuser for, for daring to defend Senator, my friend, Senator Ted Cruz, for simply engaging in speech and debate. And yet she uh, had the audacity to suggest that he was the equivalent of an attempted murderer for simply engaging in speech and debate. Now, Tony, I mean, you know, for your listeners, you, I mean, I think you know this, I actually took a different position than Senator Cruz did on the objection. Uh, we, we just read the 12th Amendment a little differently. We came to different conclusions. That's rare for, for the senator and me to disagree, but that's okay. And, and, and yet he's being attacked for, an, in, for one of a smart guy, and he, he came to that conclusion, and he didn't, he didn't go attack anybody, and he just went objective. And then she says he's basically the equivalent of attempted murder. And I thought that I didn't ask for her to be censured. 
I didn't ask for her to be stripped of her committees. I simply asked the leadership of the Democrats to, to talk to her about apologizing. I actually, and I don't want to get too much into private communications. I'm not going to go down the road she's going down. But I actually reached out to Alexandria, and we, we had an exchange. And I won't you know, divulge that other than to say, from my vantage point, I was trying to be out front, and I thought she received that well. And I'm going to always take that approach, Tony. But I'll call her out when I think she's wrong. I think she's wrong here. And then to compare Ted and myself and Josh Hawley and, my, and other colleagues to being somehow the equivalent of sexual abusers is just is beyond the pale. And yet they go after and strip Marjorie at committees yesterday and completely ignore this kind of rhetoric, which is just destroying the House of Representatives. Well, again, a, a double standard that we see applied by the left here. But I want to go back to your initial point, what prompted all of this was what I believe Senator Cruz, uh, Senator Hawley, other members, members of the House, simply uh, exercising their responsibilities, excuse me, as representatives of the people within the confines of the Constitution, something that the Democratic members have done many times this century. You are absolutely right, Tony. And and, and recently, they did it in 2017. They did it in 2005. And when they did it in 2005, by the way, and objected on uh, on the floor to uh, to the electors, they did it when John Kerry had already conceded. I mean, like, look, this is something that is not beyond the pale. It is their interpretation uh, of the Electoral Count Act, uh, which was passed in 1887, and and their view of how that you know fits within the 12th Amendment of the Constitution, and that's that's fine. That that's their reading of the Constitution. I reached a different result. Happy to talk about that, but it doesn't matter here. Right. This is speech and debate. This is what we do. And, and let me right. say one other thing, Tony. Uh, about a month ago, I took a sabbatical. It may or may not be permanent. It, it may be uh, from social media. I got off Twitter. I got off Facebook. We have a Congress that has been reduced to nothing more than a body where some members, not all, fly to D.C., push a green button or a red button, and then govern by Twitter. They, they, they engage by social media and they tweet out something, and then that's the extent of what they do. And we're tearing the country apart, shred by shred. We've got to get back to speech and debate, engaging, looking each other in the eye, rolling our sleeves up and working, Tony. And you know that because you've been around this institution in town for a long time. Well, and that's the opposite of the direction that we're headed, uh, is that we, we they, the left, and I'm, I'm going to say Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, now, actually, not so much Chuck Schumer, I think, as Nancy Pelosi, because she's a hard leftist, that want to shut down debate because I believe they cannot defend their position, so they don't want to be challenged by the other side. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and I actually had an interesting debate uh, with Steny Hoyer on the floor of the House two days ago. We actually had about a minute of actual honest-to-God back-and-forth debate, Tony. Uh, none of this, like, show stuff, where he responded to me, he yielded, we talked. And um, when we had a subsequent conversation, again, I won't get into a private conversation, but we're trying to engage on restoring regular order. You are correct. The left has been hamstrung by its radical progressive left, the squad and everybody else, and they are in absolute lockstep in in stamping on free speech, stamping on our religious liberty, trying to say that men and women aren't aren't different, that they're the same, or frankly, that we shouldn't even have men and women, that it's just, you know— some random the genderless world we're walking around in. They're changing the rules of the House to not even recognize gender. Yesterday, Tony, in the Judiciary Committee, which I'm now proud to serve on, we literally had Democrats vote against the flag and God. I'm not making yeah. that up. We, yeah. You know, they literally voted against the flag and God yesterday. Hey, it's amazing. I think I know the answer to this, uh, but uh, do you expect Nancy Pelosi to respond to your letter? I mean, so far, I haven't heard a word. Again, I had a good good conversation with Steny. Look, we'll keep moving forward trying, but um, okay. I know they're going to keep being leftist, and uh, we're going to keep fighting them uh, for the American people. Well, and we're grateful for it. Uh, Congressman Chip Roy, as always, great to uh, have you on the program today. Thanks, Tony. God bless you, sir. You too. All right, folks, don't go away, because uh, when we come back earlier this week, middle of the week, uh, members of the House, the Pro-Life Caucus, went to the floor of the U.S. House and made passioned pleas for support for the unborn. They gave voice to the voiceless. I'm going to play you some of the highlights of those moving speeches right after this break. Don't go away.
The history of religious persecution in China is extensive, and many are not aware of the current oppression of religious groups taking place there. China restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale. This religious persecution targets those of every faith—Christians, Muslims, Tibetan Buddhists, and Falun Gong practitioners—are all victims of the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to suppress any set beliefs that might compete with the party's ideology. This campaign against religion has had and continues to have devastating consequences for those who simply wish to live according to their conscience. Family Research Council's recently updated publication addresses China's consistent abuses of human rights and explains why they cannot be treated like any other country. Learn more about this issue by visiting frc.org/china. Oh man, what's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah. Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed, so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org/app and download, or search "Stand Firm" in the App Store. Okay, that's "Stand Firm." Yep, "Stand Firm." How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? I'm Tony Perkins, and you are listening to Washington Watch. You can find out more. Go to tonyperkins.com and mark your calendars next Wednesday night, February the 10th, 7:30 p.m. The first Prevote Stand Town Hall meeting. The way forward. Find out more. Go to prevotestand.org. I talk about this a lot, but it's important when you look at the United States Congress and the Senate. Over the time that I've been here, this is one of the vantage, advantages of、uh, longevity. You can see changes, and with the 2018 election, the Republican caucus in the House of Representatives became all pro-life. There were no pro-choice members. If there are, they're in quiet. They're not talking anymore. The pro-choice, openly pro-choice members either retired or were replaced. So we have a solidly pro-life House of Representatives, and I—I I mean, there's reason to be encouraged because these are people that are coming that are filled with passion. In fact, a number of new women that have come to Congress are bold pro-life leaders. So this past Wednesday night, there was a special order. This happens every year. It's usually led by the pro-life caucus, which is led by our good friend Congressman Chris Smith of New Jersey. And I just want to play a few clips of different ones who、uh, who spoke on the House floor.、Uh, Congresswoman Harshbarger of、uh, Tennessee,、uh, another one of the new members,、uh, but you can hear in her voice the passion she has for the unborn. Listen. That's why I'll continue to advocate on behalf of the right to life. I believe it is a moral and a God-given responsibility that we protect these treasured trusts from heaven. We always must remember to protect the most vulnerable among us and give a voice to those voiceless babies, those precious children that somebody would want, and somebody would nurture, and somebody would love. Ron Estes,、uh, he's been on the program before. He's from、uh, Kansas.、Uh, he also took to the floor. There's about a dozen members. He was one of the dozen that spoke Wednesday night. As elected officials, we must stand for the rights of the unborn and be a voice for the voiceless. Instead of working to protect innocent life, President Joe Biden has neglected this duty by signing executive orders that are neither pro-life nor pro-taxpayer. He's reversed the Mexico City policy, forcing U.S. taxpayer dollars to fund abortions in foreign countries—a policy that's opposed by 77 percent of Americans, Democrats, and Republicans. You know, they come from all across the country.、Um, 
blue states. Pennsylvania is one. John Joyce, a congressman from Pennsylvania, he was on the floor Wednesday night as well. This is what he had to say. As a doctor, I took an oath to protect all human life. That unequivocal truth was the foundation for my medical career. And it has continued through my work here in the United States Congress. From forcing American taxpayers to pay for abortions against their conscience to rolling back our recent pro-life achievements, President Biden has cemented his anti-life agenda in the first few days of his administration. To paraphrase President George Washington, it is deeds, not words, that define a leader. Powerful, uh, powerful words. And, of course, he's not alone from the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, Congressman Fred Keller also spoke Wednesday night. Every day as I put this pin on my collar, I reflect on the millions of lives cut short and the innovations, ideas, and improvements lost to our world. If anything else was extinguishing life on the same scale as abortion, every American would be up in arms fighting to right that wrong. Why is the sanctity of life any different? As members of Congress, if we're not willing to fight for life, what are we willing to fight for? You know, I I just want to underscore how this issue has advanced. And I've been in politics about 25 years. I actually going back to uh, the mid-90s when I left law enforcement. And this was actually the issue that brought me into the political arena, not necessarily I wanted to get in, but it just kind of, I won't go into all the details. Some of you know the story, but the reality is I've watched this issue go from one that was on the uh, kind of the outside, considered extreme among conservatives, among Republicans, to being mainstream. Why? Because we did not let up. We did not become discouraged with defeats. Science has helped us. Uh, science and technology has helped where we now have a window into the womb. We can see the humanity of the unborn. And we have continued in the march to uphold the sanctity of human life. And I think we're within reach of seeing the United States Supreme Court reverse itself on the issue of abortion. And, and I've said this before. Some on the left find it controversial. So be it. That's repentance. Turning around. And that's what we've been praying for for decades, that America would repent for abortion. And we are so close to seeing that happen. We cannot shrink back now and become discouraged. And I'll also say this, the the playbook, if you will, that's been used for the sanctity of life, basically not giving up, not throwing in the towel, but continuing to advocate for the, the unborn, continuing to stay in the fight, has led to success. We should use it on the other moral issues of our day. Look, I remember when people who were pro-life were demonized, just like they are today on other issues. I know the cancel culture is strong, but the truth is stronger. Don't throw in the towel. All right, when we come back, Travis Weber is going to be joining me. We're going to take a look at Joe Biden's first two weeks. Two weeks and uh, over two dozen executive orders. What direction is he taking the country? We talk about it next. Don't go away. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday on over 800 radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Representative Vicki Hartzler, Molly Hemingway, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Dana Lash, Sissy Graham Lynch, Pastor John MacArthur, Eric Metaxas, Albert Moeller, and more. Tony is joined by leading political figures, pastors, and policy and culture experts who will inspire you to be engaged and informed on the important issues facing America. For a Christian perspective on the news of the day, tune in to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com.
Ever since the Supreme Court handed down its infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973 that legalized abortion nationwide, a national debate has raged over whether the government should fund abortion. In 1976, Congress banned taxpayer funding of abortion and Medicaid by passing the Hyde Amendment. Several states have followed suit, passing their own restrictions on abortion funding. However, because government funding is a complex system of joint federal and state programs, completely banning taxpayer funding for abortions and abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood is challenging. There is still much work to be done to free the American taxpayer from funding the horrific practice of abortion. Family Research Council's new publication clearly explains the Hyde Amendment and why we need to keep it in order to save taxpayers from being forced to fund abortion. Access this important information by visiting frc.org slash Hyde. What's on your daily or weekly reading list? Are you looking for honest and informative commentary from fellow believers on the current issues facing our culture? Family Research Council has just the thing. Check out FRC's blog at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts as well as outside contributors. On our blog, you can read about a wide variety of topics, including religious liberty, life, marriage, family, sexuality, public policy, and the culture. Read up on some of our latest titles like Four Disturbing Trends in Religious Freedom Worldwide, Legitimizing Looting Jeopardizes Liberty for All, The Media Still Doesn't Get It, Conservatives Tend to Vote Conservative, and more. At Family Research Council, our mission is to advance faith, family, and freedom in the culture by helping you live out your faith and to stand for truth. Our blog is here to help you do that. Stay informed and get the resources you need at frcblog.com. All right. Uh, last night, Voterama in the United States Senate. Uh, unfortunately, not a Voterama here today. We uh, were in our last segment, and I want to kind of run through several things. I want to talk about last night's uh, Voterama. We had uh, 15 hours. Now, this is a process that comes around not so often, but especially when you have, which is generally the case, you, you, you have a, a party in control with very slim margin. And so this sets up the budget reconciliation, which we talked about in our first segment with Terry Jeffrey, that they'll now be able to buy a simple majority vote. Avoiding the 60-vote threshold, they'll be able to pass their coronavirus relief or blue state bailout, as I've called it. So last night they had 41 roll call votes on a variety of politically charged issues, and almost half of the votes resulted in a tie, 50-50, right along party lines. And that set up the vice president, Kamala Harris, to be the tie-breaking vote. Of course, you don't have to guess which way she went. She went with the Democrats. So we're going to talk about some of those. Joining me now in studio to uh, to discuss some of the things that happened last night, as well as uh, to take a look at some of the executive orders, over two dozen executive orders, uh, almost 40-some executive actions taken by Joe Biden in the first two weeks alone. Now, by comparison... After the first week of Donald Trump's administration, he had issued four executive orders. At the end of 100 days, he had issued 36. And the media was all over him, being a tyrant, authoritarian, not working with his own party. It was in control. Uh, but somewhere I must be missing those headlines this time uh, because I haven't been able to find them. Travis Weber, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tony. All right, let's talk about some of the uh, the key votes last night. Uh, let's start with the ones that uh, that we scored. We actually scored some in our uh, as we do our vote scorecard for people to know where their members of Congress, their senators, land. Yeah, so Tony, uh, a lot of votes last night, and about 900 amendments filed. We had uh, we knew that there could be a number of votes coming up on uh, around uh, 20 or so amendments that we were interested in on life, family, religious freedom, even some on international religious freedom. As it turns. It turns out only a handful of those actually came up for votes, so we got members, senators on the record on a few of these on uh, life and religious liberty, but um, unfortunately did not get the chance to get a lot of others uh, to come to the floor before the process closed out, but um, still got some uh, uh, scorecard additions here where we know where senators stand now on, on these issues, these key issues going into the next uh, elections that they're going to face. 
One of the issues, as you mentioned, religious liberty was up uh, last night. Uh, several, um, well, we had Senator Lee and Senator Langford both had amendments related to religious freedom. And I'll, and I'll have to say, uh, pr- pretty disappointed in the Democratic uh, majority, with the exception of, I know that um, Senator Manchin, I think, uh, crossed over and voted both on a life issue and on a religious liberty issue. I got a a clip here of uh, Senator uh, Lee, who had a a measure. I want to play that clip and, and get you to weigh in on that. Members of our communities, citizens of our country, were able to live out their lives with religious freedom prior to the pandemic. With the pandemic and the corresponding growth of government, we've seen some of those rights threatened and infringed. I introduced this amendment for the simple purpose of making sure that we as a Senate have the ability to protect the religious freedom of all Americans, even when, especially when, government is growing as a result of a crisis. That failed. Uh, 50-50 failed. Tony, the fact that this failed shows really where the Democrat Party is on religious freedom because the amendment itself was not, I don't see what's objectionable to it. It basically is setting forth a policy of upholding the free exercise of religion in different sectors of society. Uh, The text of that amendment just basically lays that out. And that's, it's a minimal, it's a pretty minimal, neutral statement of support for the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. So yeah, it failed. And and that's, that's telling of where the Democrats in the Senate are. Well, I think it's very telling where the Democratic Party is. And I would also go a step further, Travis, and I would say to those who, you know, were anti-Trump on the conservative side saying that, uh, you know, election, it just wouldn't really matter. He's such a a callous, uh, you know, mean guy uh, that, you know, we we just need to get rid of it. I mean, look, this is the, the reality is that it's not just the president, it's his entire party. And it's the stated policy priorities of the party that are advanced. We should not be surprised, although I I will have to say it's very discouraging to see the animus against religious freedom in this country. But we shouldn't be surprised because the Democrats have said this in their party platform. Yeah, I mean, we, we knew what they were campaigning on. We knew what Biden was campaigning on. And despite various talk of unity, Let's look at what is being done. Let's look at the policies that are being implemented on. Now let's look at the the votes that are being held and where members are. The facts speak for themselves. It's kind of like you put your money where your mouth is. Well, they're putting their money behind anti-religious freedom policies, anti-life policies, both coming out of the executive branch and uh, the Democrats over on the Hill. Now, there was uh, an amendment that was uh, passed by Senator Jim Inhofe of uh, Oklahoma, which made very clear that we would. Now, all of these were non-binding, so they're they're non-binding. It's not like these become statutory, but they do. You know, they they, they kind of lock people. They're in. policy statements. Yeah, they're they're policy statements. But Senator Inhofe, uh, successful, I think it was ninety nine to to one or ninety eight to two, something like that, passed an amendment that we would maintain the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem, recognizing that that was the capital of Israel. Yeah, Tony, I think of of the various you know noteworthy amendments here. Uh, this one passed by the biggest margin, ninety seven to three. Um, you know, with the statement of policy supporting the embassy staying in Jerusalem, which is interesting to see. Um, you know, the the other noteworthy amendments, that the, there's a court packing amendment to that, yeah. that failed 50-50. That was Senator Tom Cotton had that one. That's troubling. And it's a it's the same as, uh, actually more significant than Schumer, Senator Schumer refusing to agree to not abolishing the filibuster. Last night, the Democratic senators went on record saying they're not willing to agree to not pack the court. Yeah, I mean, it, it tells you where we're, it tells you where we're at, what they think of the court and what they think of uh, trying to capitalize on seizing power, grabbing more power now that they think they can do so. The, uh, there was another religious liberty amendment, uh, this by uh, Senator Lankford. He was, uh, this was basically just saying that you cannot treat a house of worship any different than you would a, a business or anything else, which, quite frankly, is the minimal uh, you know, they should have preferential treatment because it is a constitutionally protected right. He was simply advocating that you cannot treat them uh, any worse. I've got a clip of uh, uh, just a, a short clip of what he had to say on the floor last night. All that this is asking for is to make sure that we treat faith-based entities 
the same as we do secular entities. It's not asking for special treatment. It's saying if you treat a bar one way, then a block away, you have to treat a synagogue the same way. If you treat a store one way, a block away, if there's a church, you have to treat it in the same way. If there's outdoor gatherings that are allowed in the city, there has to be outdoor religious gatherings also uh, allowed. It is asking for the same treatment, not special treatment. Travis, I mean, as I said, that's that is basement level in terms of just treating religious liberty a constitutionally protected right, like everything else. Yeah, Tony. I mean, it's it's neutrality. Uh, religion not treated worse than secular activity. Basic principle principle affirmed by the Supreme Court widely wide margin in the Trinity Lutheran case, affirmed uh, throughout government policy uh, of various administrations. Yet Democrats are opposing this. This only passed fifty one to forty nine because Manchin crossed over to vote right. and support you know support the idea that we're saying. Uh, when it comes to government aid hitting a, disa- a community that's been hit by a disaster, distributing that aid, we're going to not discriminate against religious entities and not distribute the aid to them if they're next to a secular entity, a library or something like that. I don't know why that's controversial. Somehow Democrats want to oppose it now. Uh, earlier, I, I mentioned uh, the Born Alive uh, measure that Senator Sass put forth, and, and I actually think that received 52 votes because I think it was not only uh, Senator Manchin. I mentioned Senator Manchin, but also I think Senator Casey yep. crossed over and voted for that one as well. But still, it passed because there was an – I mean, it did not pass because there was an objection saying that it required – after the objection, it then required 60 votes, which they could not get to. That, that's correct. So we had two Democrats join the final vote on that, 52 to 48, but it still failed because on the procedural ruling of germaneness, it had to reach 60. So, uh, you know, it's it's unfortunate that we have any senators opposing treating infants bo- surviving a botched abortion, giving them the same medical care given others. That, that's, that's what we're looking at. They're opposing that treatment. All right, Travis, before we run out of time, I want to move on to the executive actions of the Biden administration of President Biden. I mean, these are executive actions. It's him taking this action. We're two weeks into his administration, and we've already seen 45 executive actions. Antonio, a lot, a flurry of them, 28 executive orders, the rest of various actions, memos, and similar actions. Uh, you know, he's ramming through his agenda. We're, we've seen a, a, uh, a, a expansion of the Supreme Court's Vostok ruling mandating sexuality uh, course of policies across the federal government. We've seen him roll back the transgender military policy. We've seen him roll back the Mexico City policy, prevents our dollars, funding abortion-related organi- organizations overseas. Uh, just the other day, he released a memo mandating the expansion of LGBT-related policies throughout the throughout our foreign policy as far as it concerns the reach of the U.S. government. Um, to say nothing of a host of other uh, economic-related um, and and uh, uh, immigration-related other policies he's trying to push through unilaterally, uh, despite calling for unity, he's well on his way to rushing things through. Uh, thankfully, we have members of Congress who are standing up and are going to try to stop some of these, but there's only so much they can do. It really shows why elections matter, and people should take note of what you know, if they supported Biden, look at what you're supporting now. And if they didn't, realize that what we have to do to oppose all this. There is a, um, a silver lining. I, I, I tend to, to look at the glass uh, half full, not half empty. And I, and I do this from a historical perspective as well. In 2009, I was here. I watched uh, the, the then Democratic majority. Nancy Pelosi was the speaker at the time. Barack Obama was the president. Um, and they had both the House and the Senate, and they pushed through Obamacare. Now, it was against all of the – it was just like the polling was almost identical to some of the, the polling we see today where the American people, majority of the American people, were against it because of what it was doing. In particular, we almost the, – the, the whole Obamacare scheme almost unraveled because of the life issue. I remember working, you know, we were working up until the the 11th hour on that and had Barack Obama, President, former President Barack Obama, not issued that fig leaf of protection, that fraudulent uh, memorandum on life saying that, you know, we won't put any um, any money into abortion, which we, you know, that this proved not to be true. Um, that pulled over what at the time were a number of blue dog Democrats that were pro-life. Well, 2010, the states pushed back 
the Republican wave came into Congress. They took over state legislatures. And in this last decade, we've seen uh, more pro-life legislation, probably a third of all pro-life legislation that has been passed since Roe v. Wade in 1973 happened in the last 10 years because Americans were pushing back. We're already seeing that, Travis, on this radical transgender agenda. Uh, Tony, I, I think that's, that's very true. We're seeing an uptick in state laws uh, calling out uh, those pushing radical ideologies in the country, whether concerns protecting uh, women who, who are being forced to compete against biological men or protecting children from being forced uh, to have uh, force any of these situations where they're being given um, uh, hormone treatments and other gender transition procedures that are very harmful to their long-term development. Tony, to your point about development, and uh, when we're looking at the look at the trend, I'm actually looking at a stat now. More pro-life laws have been enacted in the last 11 years than the previous 37 years since Roe. And that, we, we have numbers now that, that the 2010, uh, a marker that you, that you, uh, were talking about. Since then, consistently more Republicans holding trifectas, state controlling all three branches of, and, uh, of, of legislative and executive government at the state level than, than previously. And the genesis for that was the overreach of the Democratic Party led by Barack Obama and Nancy Pelosi. And, and if people are taking notice now, all we have to do is take notice, look at what Biden's doing. That should translate into states continuing to grow. And so don't get mad, get busy. And I know some would say, well, but the, the elections, they can they can take the elections. Uh, that's that's top at our agenda. Election reform at the states. Don't shrink back. You know, as I said earlier, don't throw in the towel. Don't give up. We must persevere. The the future of the republic, the condition, the environment in which our children, grandchildren will live depend upon us being faithful to our duty as Christians, as followers of Christ, to be salt and light in the days and times in which we live. Tony, it's absolutely right. And, you know, we're going to have at least two years of, of the current situation at the federal level, but we can, there's things we can do. We can support our members in Congress who are who are doing their best to hold the line, hold the administration accountable, introduce legislation, and, and defeat a lot of these bad measures we're going to see advance. To say nothing at the state level, we're actually going to see bills passed at the state level, I believe, on issues we care about deeply because of the situation where we have right. 20 states where we control executive and, and, um, and, and legislative branches compared to 12 for the Democrats. That's a good margin, and we need to use that. Yeah, absolutely. Travis Weber, thanks so much uh, for, uh, for joining us today. Thanks. And, folks, I, I just want to encourage you. Uh, first off, pray. We need to pray. Pray that God would change the hearts and minds of some of these people. Yes, Travis is right. We've got two years till the next election. Uh, but God's not limited by elections. He can change people's hearts, and he can also change the, the positions that they have. And we need to be praying. We need to be, as we say, pray, vote, and stand. We voted. Now we stand. And we continue to pray. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, prepared, and taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.